compliment as well, okay. So welcome everybody. Uh, really good to see you all. I hope everyone had a, a Chag Sameach. I think we have a very interesting Chabura in store today. And uh, before I introduce this evening's very special guest speaker, I just wanted to mention our, our membership program, uh, which I'm sure you're all, all aware of by now. <laughs> and sign up and uh, find out more to check out our website, thechabura.com, if you haven't yet. And you can see our exciting uh, launch video there. Um, one final announcement, unrelated to the Chabura itself, but um, Rabbi Dweck has released his own podcast um, last week, Humans Being. I strongly recommend it. Uh, definitely a, a podcast worth subscribing to. I listened to the first episode with British philosopher AC Grayling. Fascinating conversation to listen into. Um, and I think that's all the announcements for now. So for today's event, I take great pleasure in presenting Professor Eric Lawi, uh, who is a professor in the Department of Bible at Barry Land University, where he teaches the history of Jewish biblical scholarship. Um, the professor also holds the Rabbi Asher Weiser Chair in Medieval Biblical Commentary Research at Barry Land and serves as director of the university's Institute for Jewish Bible Interpretation. His most recent book, Rashi's commentary on the Torah, uh, Canonization and Resistance in the Reception of a Jewish Classic by Oxford University Press, has won a National Jewish Book Award and we've sent on the flyer, we have the, a very tasty 30% discount for the Chabura. If you use the, the voucher code, which is, um, is there on, on the poster and let us know if you haven't yet seen it, we've sent, um, um, and so I think tonight we'll be discussing and developing some ideas from the book itself and his own research. Um, and then we'll take some questions. Um, I, I just, a uh, word, I've, I've actually ordered it, but I have not yet received it. Um, but I am familiar though with another book of the professor, which is about the Abarbanel, um, which is titled Itzhak Abarbanel's Stance Towards Tradition, which I found to be an absolutely amazing book on of the extraordinary life of and profound thoughts of Don Yitzhak Barbanel, a remarkable figure, of course, of the, of the Sephardi tradition, and which we will, please God, be exploring in depth once membership mode kicks in, and we hope to have the professor back for that. Um, but today our focus, though, is on Rashi and his reception across the Jewish world, and particularly how it was received by the Sephardim. And nowadays, as we all know, it's, it's so widespread and embedded in our, in our, in rabbinic literature and the school curriculums and it feels almost as if it were given on Har Sinai. And, um, you know, obviously there was Torah and uh, Gemara pre-Rashi. So hopefully tonight's talk will shed some light on the most famous and, and influential commentator in rabbinic literature. Um, we really appreciate you joining us. I know it's late for you. Um, and thank you very much. I think enough from me. Uh, all yours. And I'll, I'll mute myself and I'll reappear for the Q&A. Okay, well, uh, pleasure to be with you all uh, virtually. Uh, there aren't too many things to be said in favor of uh, the COVID pandemic, but these uh, international colloquiums where we manage to cross time zones and borders and learn things together is certainly one of the few uh, high points, I would say, of uh, the outcome of that otherwise uh, miserable uh, development. Uh, we're talking tonight about a very broad uh, topic, and it's almost my bedtime, so uh, we can't uh, deal with every aspect of it. 
but um, you know, broadly speaking, uh, our story is part of a much larger story of uh, what you might call encounters between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim, a sort of topic of perennial interest. And I think uh, tracing the history of Rashi's reception in Sfarad certainly does a lot to open many windows on different aspects of that encounter. So that's what I'll try to uh, focus on. Uh, and again, you know, really just some of the high points uh, of a story that has uh, many dimensions to it and which, uh, you know, I think uh, really in many ways has yet to be fully, fully explored. So it's an invitation for all of us to think about it uh, going, going forward. I won't say too much about Rashi's commentary on the Torah, which is our focus tonight. That would be a session unto itself. Uh, I think the pithy thing to say about Rashi is what my uh, teacher of blessed memory, uh, Rabbi Dr. Uh, Yitzhak Tursky used to say when he had what I considered the unenviable task of teaching Harvard undergraduates, many of whom had never heard of Rashi before they walked in the room that day uh, about Rashi's monumental achievement. You know, how do you sum up Rashi in, in, a, in a line or two? And the way he used to explain it to uh, Harvard undergraduates was that Rashi wrote the classic commentary on the two classics of Judaism, which I think certainly gets points for concision. And I think also for other things, Rashi of course wrote the commentary on the Torah, not that there weren't others, but the one that became what I call in the title of the book, the canonical commentary on the Torah that requires some unpacking. I won't take time to do that work at the moment. And of course he also, astonishingly, one has to say, uh, wrote the commentary on the Talmud Bavli. And while there were definitely other commentaries written on the Torah after Rashi, no one for a moment thought to try to reproduce Rashi's achievement as a Talmud commentator. There were many other things that were written about the Talmud, Chidushim, and other, other genres that were developed, the Tosafists, of course. But uh, after Rashi had consigned all earlier offerings in the field to the dustbin of history, uh, he basically was the commentator who uh, takes uh, every student of the Babylonian Talmud by the hand and walks into that uh, recondite and uh, uh, often uh, you know, uh, difficult, uh, difficult text. So you uh, have a figure who uh, could have justified himself with either of those achievements, somehow managed both, and what seems to have been a relatively short lifetime. We don't know for sure when Rashi was born, but we often give the date of uh, 11, uh, 1040. Uh, we know that he died in 1105. Uh, sticking with the Torah commentary, we're talking about a document that has shaped the perceptions of Torah, uh, Judaism foundation document uh, among leading scholars, among lay readers, among men, among women, among literate, among illiterate, and uh, anyone who has ever attended a traditional uh, uh, kindergarten of any sort, whether in Israel or abroad, will certainly know that any kindergarten teacher with his or her salt will routinely be imparting uh, Rashi's commentary, not necessarily announcing it as such, uh, to uh, his or her uh, young uh, charges. Uh, and it's so much the fabric, as Avi said, of, of the sort of warp and woof of Jewish culture that one sometimes forgets that there was actually a process by virtue of with which it, it attained this uh, status. So that was the uh, sort of question I set for myself when I started working on this, which was really about a decade and a half or so ago. 
uh, from various religious perspectives, various literary perspectives, various intellectual perspectives. You know, how did Rashi's commentary become the classic work in the field, a staple in the curriculum, uh, really a source, I would say, of a shared religious vocabulary uh, for Jews across time and, uh, and place. Uh, maybe you would even go so far as to say something that's really shaped the sort of national Jewish identity. Um, what we'll do tonight is look at some of those processes as they unfolded in uh, Spain. And to do so, I do have a source sheet. I think it was sent out on the chat. Uh, there's a link uh, to the source sheet on the OneDrive. I'll also, however, call it up uh, on the screen. Uh, so I'll go back and forth. I, I generally tell my students I'd rather look at their faces than, uh, than look at, at the source sheet, uh, but there's a place for that as well. Uh, so I'll try to go back and forth. Uh, I, I won't say with great finesse, since I don't tend to do Zoom with great finesse, as my students will also tell you. Anyway, uh, so let's uh, start with uh, what I've called early encounters. Uh, when does you know, the Sephardic world learn of Rashi and uh, think about Rashi for the first time? And the answer is it doesn't happen in Spain. It happens when a great figure of the Sephardic tradition leaves Spain, uh, Avraham ibn Ezra, uh, the great product or the capstone, you might say, of the Andalusi uh, biblical uh, interpretation tradition, that is to say, the, the tradition of Jewish uh, parshanut that developed in Muslim Spain, Al-Andalus. Uh, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, we think it has something to do with his financial situation. Ibn Ezra was forced to leave Muslim Spain, much to his chagrin and found himself in various places in Christian Europe. You can see here, I assume everyone's able to follow here. Everyone's seeing that? Okay, good. Uh, he went to many places. We won't trace his whole itinerary, but he starts out in Italy and ends up uh, in Southern France, Narbonne, Bézier, Bordeaux, uh, goes to Northern France. There he does meet the Bali Atosafot. These are descendants of Rashi effectively, his grandchildren. Uh, ends up as far North as London. Uh, he's now in Christian Europe. And uh, from his point of view, this is a horribly barbaric place to find yourself after uh, spending uh, the first 50 years of your life in Muslim Spain, which is of course a great center of um, scientific uh, culture, of literary culture, the place where uh, Jewish poetry famously flourishes during the so-called uh, golden age and so on and so forth. And he hears about uh, a rabbi named uh, Rabbeinu Shlomo, Rabbi Solomon, uh, that is to say, uh, Rashi, who is uh, highly prized in uh, these domains where he is now forced to, among other things, try to support himself financially and, uh, you know, ingratiate himself in some measure with the locals. Although, uh, you know, as they say, he sort of considers them country bumpkins uh, and uh, has a sort of strong sense of mission to impart to them the great achievements of Sparta culture such as they developed in Muslim Spain in the sphere of a grammar, in the sphere of science, in the sphere of poetry, and on and on the list goes. Uh, and we have uh, various texts where he relates to Rashi. The one that's most often cited is in this work called Safabrura. It's a grammatical work of his. And here he's trying to develop the idea that the uh, fundament of Jewish biblical commentary is the pshat, pshutoshal mikra, what uh, you could call the simple sense, the contextual sense. Uh, that's what one ought to aim for as a commentator. 
Of course, he's well aware that the tradition that comes down from uh, the rabbinic world, the ancient rabbinic sages, Chazal, uh, is uh, midrashic, and that poses a problem. Why, if Pshat is the ikar, why, if Pshat is the fundamental goal of the commentator, the one that one ought to strive to uncover, is it that uh, the ancient sages, uh, blessed be their memory, can Chachameinu Zichronam Nibracha, so much uh, cultivated uh, midrash. And he tells us here, we can start to read. I gave the sources in Hebrew, but I'll try to translate as we go along. And I guess if there's questions, you can uh, pose them in the chat or just wave wildly. Ein uh, shehem, that means chazal, yadu'u haderech hayishara. They knew the straight path, which is his uh, synonym for derech hapshat, for this contextual meaning based on grammar, based on context, without extraneous interpolations into the biblical text. And they, in fact, say we have this uh, famous rabbinic statement, which is the uh, sort of slogan of all the pshatists of the Jewish Middle Ages, uh, that the rabbis themselves stress that uh, pshat is certainly a feature of the biblical text, and uh, one can't completely ignore the pshat. Now he's not quoting the rabbis anymore, but giving you his take on Midrash. Well, what's the purpose of these Midrashim? He says, well, that's an add-on. Tosefetam. It doesn't really uh, explain the significance of the text. It uh, is a superimposition on the text, which has, you know, didactic value, maybe inspirational value, uh, etc. What happened? Catastrophe, says Ibn Ezra. Hadorot ba'im samu kol drash ikar v'shoresh. Afterwards, people misunderstood what the rabbinic legacy was. The rabbis knew well that pshat was the main thing, just like I think pshat is the main thing. That's what I do. Uh, nine to five as a Bible commentator. Uh, but afterwards, people thought, no, Midrash is the main thing. They made the Drash Ikar, they made that the fundament. Vashorash, they made that the root. And who is an exemplar of this colossal uh, misunderstanding, this colossal error? Karab Shlomo Zal. Uh, Rabbi Solomon, that is to say, Rashi. Sheperesh Hatanach al Drash. He explains uh, the Bible mostly. Uh, by way of Midrashim, these homiletical, if you will, interpretations of the rabbinic sages. And here comes the unkindest cut of all. Rashi announces himself as someone who is interested in Pshat. He came to unfold the plain sense meaning. And Rashi is busy adducing one Midrash after another. And uh, uh, you know, that would be bad enough, but to confuse that with, to think that in so doing, you're actually uncovering the plain sense, well, that's uh, essentially uh, the most unforgivable sin you can commit from the point of view of Ibn Ezra, this proud offshoot of this Andalusian Spartac tradition, which focuses on grammar and context and so on, uh, and also uh, reasonability. The ain bisvarav rak pshat echad mini elef. In Rashi's uh, biblical commentaries, he does occasionally hit on the pshat. We don't know if this is an exaggeration, but it's certainly not a compliment. You know, one in a thousand uh, of Rashi's interpretations are actually pshat. But uh, terrible to say, says Ibn Ezra. If you ask people what they like, they say, oh, Rashi, he's great. <laughs> uh, so um, it's sort of a surprisingly uh, uh, frontal assault on Rashi as an exemplar of a larger trend in uh, in uh, Christian Europe, that is the uh, primacy of drash interpretation 
whereas Ibn Ezra coming from a very different cultural milieu um, wishes to champion the, uh, the shot. If you want to see an example of this, just uh, this is sort of the theory. I chose the one when you would have chosen many, in fact, uh, the example of a, a figure who's mentioned very fleetingly in the biblical text. We have many figures like that. They sort of pop up and disappear. Nimrod, right? People will remember that in chapter 10 of uh, Genesis, we uh, meet someone named Nimrod. He then figures in Midrashic traditions, of course, having to do with Abraham, etc. But uh, we don't learn a whole lot about Nimrod. Uh, we're told that who hechel lihiyod gibor ba'aretz. He was a, uh, you know, a, a courageous figure, a mighty figure in the land. There's even a slogan that arose around him. Uh, so we learn that he's a gibor, he's a gibor side. It seems like that's his professional activity on a daily basis to in, in, engage in hunting. Uh, Rashi, uh, trying to understand what we can piece together of this somewhat elliptical description and drawing on Midrashic tradition says, uh, I can tell you what he was all about. He was someone who tried to incite rebellion against God. Now we ask ourselves, how does Rashi know such a thing? It certainly didn't say that in the verses that we just read. And there are, there's another verse which describes what he did, but nothing along these lines. And the answer is Rashi is working here with a very standard trope of Midrashic interpretation. His name is Nimrod, right? What is the root of his name? His name is Nimrod. We can infer from that that he's all about merit. He's all about rebellion. And who is he rebelling against? He's rebelling against God. So we are not talking about a righteous figure. We're talking about a villain. Gibor Tsaid Sa'id, his hunting activity, Rashi understands metaphorically. It's not hunting activity uh, in the physical sense, trapping uh, game, but it's hunting activity in terms of uh, capturing people's minds and misleading them, and actually actually leading them bad enough that he's rebellious against God, he leads others to do the same. Uh, it says it's before God, which is usually a fairly positive thing in the Torah. We can think of all sorts of things that people do. Uh, that's something that you're supposed to do. So here he says, he was provocative to God's uh, uh, face. So that's the Nimrod of Rashi, very much uh, in the image of the Midrashic Nimrod. Comes along Ibn Ezra and he says, uh, I'm a Pashtan. I look at what I have before me, the data in the biblical text. And he says, the first thing to know is, don't start making a big deal about people's names. Unless, what does it mean, if there's actually reference to the meaning of a name in the biblical text itself, so that becomes part of the biblical data. But in the case of Nimrod, that's uh, not the case. And in that case, you have no right to draw inferences from a person's name as the Balei HaMidrash, as the Midrashes so frequently do. What does it mean that he's a, he's a hunter? He's a hunter. <laughs> There's no great uh, need for metaphorical interpretation here. It's very straightforward. And what about Lifnei Hashem? So here Ibn Ezra is quite ingenious. He says, not only was he a hunter, but he was a very pious hunter. And he took some of the animals that he hunted. He actually brought them as sacrifices before God. Now Ibn Ezra knows this is completely contrary 
to the whole weight of Midrashic tradition. But he is uh, very bold. He says in his introduction, I'm going to call the shots the way I see them. And so too here he says, The plain sense interpretation is we're talking about a righteous, pious person. I have to admit, and I certainly am well aware of the fact that uh, Midrashim say otherwise. Of course, it didn't help from Ibn Esther's point of view that these Midrashim, which maybe weren't known to everyone, had now been broadcast by whom? By this Rav Shlomo that he had just uh, mentioned. This is something that Ibn Ezra is very aware of, that even where there's Midrashic traditions, it's not the case that every last person has studied Midrash Rabbah and all the other obscure, in some cases difficult to access, especially in the 12th century uh, rabbinic compilations, but they are more and more reading Rashi's um, anthology of Midrashim, and anyone who's read Rashi knows that Nimrod is an evil person who was rebellious and got other people to, to rebel. So that's our first encounter between Sfarad and Ashkenaz when it comes to Rashi's commentary on the Torah. Uh, Sephardic expat, you might say, uh, even Ezra, forced to leave Spain, comes to Christian Europe and is appalled to learn that there's a commentator named uh, Rabbeinu Shlomo, Rav uh, Shlomo, who, uh, who was very popular and who represents these Midrashic interpretations, which are also very popular and which he sees as a distortion of the, uh, rabbinic, uh, the rabbinic legacy. If we ask when Rashi first came to Spain, in other words, Ibn Ezra has come to Rashi, when did Rashi first come to Spain? And that proves to be a somewhat complicated question. I won't give you all the sort of fragmentary evidence we have, but I will note, and go back to our source sheet, uh, that uh, we do have a document from the mid 12th century, that is to say after Ibn Ezra has uh, left Spain and been traveling in uh, Christian Europe, Sefer Kabbalah, Rabbi Avram Ibn Daud. We won't again have time to uh, give a full bio of each figure whom we meet. We have a lot of people on the list and I'm already worried that we're falling behind, but uh, he was a, a, a figure of note in Andalus, Al-Andalus, Muslim Spain. What happens in 1148 is the Jewish community in Muslim Spain is effectively wiped out in one fell swoop due to an invasion by, a, I think we could call them fundamentalist Muslim tribe from North Africa. There's a whole story here which has to do with the ongoing battle in Iberia between Christians and Muslims and the shifting border. Uh, slowly Christians are starting to win more and more battles and the Muslims in the south of Spain call for help and these people come in and uh, they're especially intolerant brand of Islam, somewhat uncharacteristic in fact for the period. Uh, and the Jews uh, effectively have to flee or they can convert to Islam, but if they want to stay Jewish, they have to flee. And so they cross the border in many cases to Christian Spain. So this is what Avram Ibn Dao does. He's now situated in Toledo, which is uh, a major center in Spain, which has uh, fallen to the Christians already sometime before. And he lists, he says, you know, uh, us, uh, us Faradin, we haven't heard too much about this uh, world of Jewish learning in Northern Europe. Uh, we were under Islamic rule, they're under the cross, so there wasn't a whole lot of communication. But he says, I have heard of some rabbis, the Eretz Sarfat in France, Chachamim Gedolim, very uh, uh, towering figures. And he lists a whole bunch of uh, French rabbis who he's heard of, including Rashi's grandson, Rabbi Yaakov Ben Meir, that is the famous Rabbeinu Tam. He's the only one he mentions from Northern France. All the others are from Southern France. Who is missing from this list? Rashi is missing from this list. And we wondered, does that mean that he'd never heard of Rashi? Possible. Or some have speculated, actually, he's only listing prominent rabbis from his own time. 
in which case the absence of Rashi could be explained uh, can, could be explained that way. What's interesting is that not all that long uh, after, four decades uh, further along the way, around 1200, uh, somebody we think in southern France took it upon themselves to uh, add a few things to Sefer Kabbalah. Uh, so this is a Tosefet. This is an addition, an addendum to Sefer Kabbalah from around 1200, written by a southern French uh, sage. And he, he says, wait a second, you can't talk about great figures from France and not mention Rashi. That's, uh, you know, unimaginable. There was a great light that exited from France. There's never been anything like it. That's where Rashi was from, in Troyes, not that far from Paris. The Rebbe Yitzchak. We'll read the whole section, but here you have somebody who is in southern France, closer to Rashi's home base, and who uh, reads Sefer Kabbalah and reads about these great French sages and recognizes that there's a huge gap here because Rashi is, uh, Rashi is uh, missing. If we return to uh, Spain now, uh, we uh, know that the greatest figure to emerge in Christian Spain uh, after uh, Rashi was Ranban, Rabbi Moshe ben uh, Nachman, not to be confused, of course, with Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, and it's very easy to confuse them, as you all know, because there's Rambam and Ranban. Uh, some may have seen the Sirtone, the, the little video, Rambam, Ranban. Uh, so we're talking about Ranban, uh, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman, a uh, great Talmudist, great Bible commentator, uh, what we say in Hebrew, Ish Eshkolot, the real Renaissance man, we might translate it. Truly a remarkable figure. I sometimes feel badly for him because, of course, Rambam was so spectacular that only Rambam could uh, could uh, somehow make Rambam recede a little bit into the background. But we certainly haven't forgotten Rambam and his, his achievements, important Kabbalists, needless to say. And he writes a commentary on the Torah, and he's very well aware of Ibn Ezra, that's the legacy from Muslim Spain that he most relates to. But he's also aware of this uh, branch of Jewish learning in Christian Europe. He's, after all, in Christian Europe, in Barcelona. That was a part of Spain that was never conquered by the uh, Muslims. And in his introductory poem, he talks about how he's going to relate to Rashi. And he talks about how he'll relate to Perushe Rabbeinu Shlomo. I won't try to translate all the poetry here, but they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're compliments. Uh, he's, you know, this uh, uh, grandiose figure, both in terms of his biblical scholarship and also in terms of his Talmudic learning. Uh, so that's the, that's the good part. That's the valorizing part. That's uh, the heroic image of Rashi that one might uh, expect. But now we have a, a somewhat more ambiguous set of uh, suggestions about how he's going to relate to Rashi. On the one hand, lo mishpata bechola. No doubt about it. He has the right of the firstborn. He was early among our uh, 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 medieval commentators. You have to concede that point. Bidivarav uh, ehegel certainly contemplate what he has to say. Ba'ahavatam eshgeal. I'll be infatuated. Uh, with his, uh, with with my love of him, uh, which is an interesting expression. Infatuation is a sort of interesting type of sentiment if you translate the verse in, in uh, Proverbs that way in Mishlei, based on the pasuk, But then he says, But that doesn't mean I concede my critical factor, uh, faculties. Uh, 
there'll be, we, we might translate negotiations, they'll be back and forth, there'll be uh, due consideration, but uh, I will certainly weigh in the balance what he has to say and uh, you know think if I agree or don't agree. And then he says, Drisha v'chakira. in fact, that's a little bit more of a judicial language, you might say. There'll be in, in, you know, a serious investigation, exploration of how tenable uh, Rashi's ideas are when it comes to his plain sense interpretation, bifshatav, midrasha v'kol agada b'tsura. When it comes to his midrashic interpretations and every agada b'tsura, I don't know how to translate that, every uh, agada, every midrashic interpretation that he has reinforced, and I think Ranban here is very aware, as we've already seen, of this uh, phenomenon that uh, uh, the more that uh, Rashi uh, cited uh, Midrash, the more people felt like, well, I guess that's what the Torah means, right? Ask any kid, uh, you know, about what uh, Abraham did, Avraham did, vis-a-vis uh, -vis his father and his uh, idols. And I'll tell you, well, he smashed the idols. And sometimes the child or even the adult doesn't necessarily recognize that that's not anywhere in the Torah. That's in a Midrash, but importantly, in a Midrash that Rashi brings. And so this becomes sort of part and parcel of the sort of uh, natural uh, Jewish reading of the of the uh, of the Torah, and Ramban is aware of that, and so he says. Uh, but even there, he says, "I'm going to, you know, take on each one, weigh it in the balance, exercise my critical faculties." And anyone who's Ramban knows that he was not afraid of anybody, not of Rashi, not of Rambam, uh, a man who um, was certainly willing to uh, uh, stand up for what he thought was uh, uh, was correct. Here, I gave you another example, just again to see. Uh, one could uh, map a spectrum of encounters between Ranban and Rashi from the highly complimentary to the less complimentary. Uh, the verse I chose in this case is also from uh, Bereshit, chapter two of Genesis, where we learn, uh, you know, the Torah seems to find this something worth remarking on as if it's not obvious, you know, why shouldn't people just stay with their families? No, says the Torah, Al-Kain, Ya'azov, Ish, Et Aviv, Et has phenomenon that uh, people go out and they meet complete strangers and they start a new family. That's not uh, something to uh, take as a given. So a person, um, and in this case, will go out and he will cling to his wife, the echad, and they will become as one flesh. Well, what does that mean? So Rashi understands this to mean quite literally, it's really flesh in the literal sense of the term. The child uh, is a product of the two parents. Right in that sense, they become one flesh. Sometimes you see it in the facial features, right? Some of the mother, some of the father. That's uh, where you see this um, uh, realization of uh, one flesh. Ranban uh, quotes Rashi, which is very common. This becomes part of the process of Rashi's canonization. That more and more people feel like before I say what I want to say, I have to quote uh, Rashi. Here says Lashon Rashi. It's not really accurate. Ranban always calls him Rabbeinu Shlomo, Rabbi Solomon, but not important for current purposes. He quotes him. And then he goes on to say, This is not for me. This is a tasteless, not in the sense of uh, we usually use it in English, but uh, this is a, this is a, an explanation without, uh, without taste. It's really not compelling. And he says the reason it's not compelling is because this is something that all species do. Right, I mean, the birds, the bees, cows, the dogs, the donkeys, they all uh, procreate, they all have children. Surely we're looking here for something that is distinctive about human beings and the relationship between the human male and the human female when they are in this state of dvekut, in this state of uh, connectedness. 
or clinging to one another even. Uh, and he says, uh, my understanding of it is that it's not realized through children. You don't have to have children, in fact, to achieve this state of the Vekut. Uh, what's unique is the um, possibility of a monogamous relationship, especially from the point of view of the human male who might be given uh, to uh, uh, multiple uh, uh, partners and to nonetheless can choose uh, sometimes to stay imo. He actually chooses to stay in a long-term relationship with um, with uh, one woman as opposed to serially uh, encountering uh, many women. So again, uh, the details of the uh, argument here, the machoket is not so much our our current uh, focus, although it's interesting to see you know these very different conceptions of what the Torah means in this pasuk. But it's more uh, to see the sort of dynamics at play here where Ramban on the one hand is sort of aware of Rashi, uh, brings Rashi, but doesn't necessarily feel by any means to agree with, uh, agree with Rashi. Another dimension to Rashi's uh, naturalization, I guess you could call it, in the world of uh, Spain. And again, we're really talking about Christian Spain by uh, this period, 13, 14, 15th centuries, there's uh, really no uh, Jewish life in Muslim Spain. There'll be a remnant that uh, you know, reasserts itself at the end of the Middle Ages around the time of the Spanish expulsion. But we're uh, pretty much forevermore talking about encounters in Christian Spain. Another uh, aspect of this is a, a really remarkable halachic development, a legal development. We know that the Talmud tells us that there's an obligation to privately review the uh, weekly parasha. Right, that you read the weekly parasha twice in Hebrew, that means once in the Aramaic translation. Why Aramaic? Um, I'm usually, I, I actually prefer a more interactive environment. I don't know if you want to sort of have more of exchange, but I guess for tonight, we'll, we'll uh, skip the pedagogic niceties and I will bore you with a, with a lecture instead. Uh, why Aramaic? Because that was the lingua franca of the ancient world. And it would be very equivalent to a Jew in London who might have trouble understanding this week's parasha in Hebrew, but would you know benefit from reading it in some worthwhile uh, English translation. So that was the function of Aramaic for a long time. Problem. At a certain point, Aramaic ceases to be a spoken language of Jews. This has a lot to do with the rise of Islam. The fact that world Jewry is at a certain point living 90% under Muslim rule. And uh, Arabic replaces Aramaic. Now, uh, Aramaic is not only not an aid in understanding the weekly parasha, but it's really an impediment. If anything, people are more likely to understand the original Hebrew and uh, break their teeth trying to figure out what this Ara tra Aramaic translation is, is uh, telling them. Some rabbis were disturbed by this development. In other words, remember the obsolescence of Aramaic and what to do about it, because now we have this law on the books that requires us to be reading the Torah every week in uh, Targum Onkelis, right, the Aramaic translation. And uh, one rabbi in particular, uh, Rabbi Moshe Mikutsi, the famous author of the Sefer Mitzvot uh, Gadol, uh, the Smag, Bala Smag, tells us in a source that you have on the, on the source sheet here. I mean, if you all have it, I don't even have to even call it up each time, but we'll quickly look at it. He says, Vani lifne rabotai. I had an idea to solve this problem. And that was, why don't we learn a commentary that's more accessible? Let's learn HaPerush. That would be Mo'il Yoter Targum. That would be more helpful. Vahoduli Rabotai. I pitched this idea to my rabbinic 
betters, elders and betters, and he said, that's actually a good idea. And this begins a long history, which I don't begin to trace here in detail, but you'll have a few uh, snippets that capture some of its unfolding, whereby Rashi either supplements the Aramaic translation, or in some cases, according to certain halachis, ideally replaces it because it's more, more accessible. And here is where we can see the sort of element of Ashkenazic Svartic interchange. Rabbi Moshe Mikutsi, Kutsi is a place in France. So this is originally an idea that arises in France, perhaps not surprisingly, that's where Rashi's from. And uh, it takes off in France, spreads to other places in Ashkenaz, including Germany. If we fast forward a little bit to the beginning of the 14th century, things are very bad for Jews in Germany. And uh, one of the leading rabbinic figures, Rabbeinu Asher, uh, the Rosh, so-called, is forced to, or chooses to flee Germany. His, uh, his Rebbe, uh, uh, Mayor Rothenberg, has been put in jail. He fears the same for himself. And he comes to Spain. And uh, he brings in his luggage, as it were, this uh, habit that has been growing in Ashkenaz, more in France than in Germany, but also in Germany, to read the parasha uh, with, uh, with Rashi. And he says, If you read the weekly parasha with a, with a uh, commentary, uh, then you fulfill your obligation. You don't have to read the Aramaic translation. Because the commentary explains everything. What commentary does he have in mind? He couldn't possibly have in mind any other commentary than, than uh, Rashi, even though that's not uh, spelled out. If we go to the next generation, his youngest son, the famous... Uh, Balhaturim writes a code. Now here we have a case of uh, Ashkenazic immigrants to Spain who have come to Spain and are starting to acclimatize, but who bring with them the habits of Ashkenazic Jewry. And the question is, what is this codifier who is Ashkenazic in origin, but is now writing on Spanish soil, on Sephardic soil, going to tell us about this halacha? And he says, You have to do this, uh, this uh, obligatory thing. I'm just going to uh, check the chat to make sure I'm not uh, missing something important. Okay. Uh, and, and he says, He teaches like his father that you can use Rashi as a replacement. If you jump ahead, again, just to fill out the story a little bit to the Shulchan Aruch, of course, a Sephardic uh, work written uh, outside the uh, precincts of uh, Spain itself. Uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, as there you have uh, This is what we've already seen, but he adds a, a bit of a caveat or qualifier. If you're a God-fearing person, you'll do both. And I have to add here that this is not a trivial uh, addendum to this uh, this minhag. If you're not minhag halacha, if you're reading the parasha twice in Hebrew. And you have to add the Aramaic Targum. And now you have to add all of Rashi's commentary, which is, uh, you know, succinct in its own way, but is a substantial amount of added reading. So it's not easy to be a God-fearing person, I would say, or it's harder to be a God-fearing person when you have to do all those things all within, of course, the, the span of a, of a single single week. So here we have a minhag uh, that came from our halacha, that came from Ashkenaz and uh, gets transferred to Spain via this very important rabbinic figure who becomes a rabbi in Toledo, uh, Rabbeinu Asher, and then gets codified. Uh, how much it's spread in Spain is hard to tell because we have basically Ashkenazic voices here, even though they're speaking on Spanish soil, uh, reflecting developments in, uh, in Ashkenaz. 
If we turn to yet another sphere where Rashi was highly influential, the sphere of education, I brought just a few sources. First of all, again, continuing our little survey of this interesting family of the Rosh that arrived from Germany and sets up shop in Spain, we have a interesting document that's something called an ethical will. Uh, many people are familiar with wills where you bequeath to your children your material wealth. There was a very lovely Jewish habit of often bequeathing to your children your spiritual wealth, as it were, by bestowing upon them or bequeathing to them the wisdom you had acquired in terms of matters, uh, spiritual, uh, ethical, and so forth. Uh, so we have the ethical will of the oldest son. This is not, uh, this is not the Balaturim, but his older brother of Yehuda ben Arosh. And he says something very interesting, which gives us a bit of a sense of different attitudes towards a scripture, Mikra, in general in Spain, Ashkenaz, which is his own story we can talk about perhaps some other time. He tells his children, you should set aside times to study uh, scripture. Uh, and he admits, you know, when I was a kid, basically he says, you know, as Ashkenazim, we have one book that we study. We're the people of the book and our book is not the Bible. <laughs> our book is the Talmud. It's the Talmud, the Talmud and more Talmud, right? And if you wanted to be a sage in Ashkenaz, you have to be a Talmudist. Rashi's a Talmudist. Rashbam is a Talmudist. Rabbeinu Tam is a Talmudist. In Spain, you don't have to be a Talmudist to be a sage. You can be in a Barbanel, who was mentioned earlier, a little aggressive marketing for my book, uh, who, uh, who worked in a lot of diverse fields, impressively diverse, uh, but we have no record of his prowess as a, uh, as a uh, Talmudist. So here we have uh, Yehuda ben Arosh who says, you know, I grew up in Germany. We didn't do this stuff called Bible. Uh, only when I got to Spain did I realize that, uh, wow, there's a lot of people who take this book very seriously. Sephardim, they're constantly reading this uh, book called the Tanakh. Uh, so he tells his children, you know what? That's actually not a bad idea. Uh, here the Sephardim, uh, you know, have something right and you should, uh, you should emulate them. And he mentions here, that's why we're um, uh, noting it. He mentions it's not enough, of course, just to read the text itself, the pasuk, but you should also learn a bedigduk, meaning to say uh, the grammar, and also ferush. He doesn't again spell it perush rashi. I'm willing to put money on the fact that he probably had perush rashi in mind, uh, given these Ashkenazic and there aren't too many uh, competitors. If we turn to a true blue Svaradi, Rabbi Yehuda Chalatz, who was uh, someone who lived around Bedor uh, HaGerush, uh, actually did live in Muslim Spain, went, goes to North Africa. He writes a commentary on Rashi's commentary. This becomes a very prominent genre. And he says, uh, He says, this is not just a Spartic thing. Everywhere that I know, when people start to study, uh, they start with Rashi. Rashi. For one thing, you learn the pshat. Interesting, he sees Rashi as a plain sense commentator. But you also learn certain techniques uh, that are useful for Talmud study, what he calls here Havanat Lishanot. I added here, This is a stepping stone to Talmud study, and uh, Rashi is important for that as well. So uh, there's a whole history which really has not been traced, and I didn't do much with it in my book either. I might add, I have a lot of material. Uh, but, uh, you know, who has time for uh, all these dimensions? Because you see how multidimensional the, the story is of Rashi's impact, enormous impact on Jewish education in the Middle Ages, in the early modern period, in Ashkenaz, in Svarad, and so on and so forth. 
Now, so far, we've generally talked about people who are either appreciative of Rashi or I would say respectfully critical of Rashi. Ibn Ezra was relatively harsh. And Ban, you know, says, that's a, almost as harsh as he gets. Uh, but we do learn from certain Spanish sources that there were some people who uh, took a very negative view of Rashi's achievement as a Torah commentator. Again, we won't take time to introduce all these figures. Some of them were not exactly household names. Rami Moshe Gabay, another, sounds very Sephardic, right? Another Sephardic uh, commentator on Rashi, who writes a very large commentary on Rashi's Torah commentary. Again, a genre that's interesting in and of itself. People say Rashi's so important, I'm not even going to comment on the Torah. I'll devote myself to commentary on Rashi himself. And he tells us about different groups of critics of uh, Rashi. Ra'iti anashim kfurim b'sichudam. He's very unhappy about these critics, so he speaks about them. You'll get a sense of his uh, high rhetorical dudgeon here. Ra'iti anashim kfurim b'sichudam. I've seen people buried in their ignorance. Ubao al perush Rashi. They've set upon Rashi's commentary. You can almost hear him saying, you know, God forbid, lo aleinu chas v'shalom in brackets. Uh, uh, what are their complaints? So one complaint is kikulo male drashot agadot. Well, this of course is a feature of Rashi's commentary. Again, we don't have time to develop it too much, but Rashi who did speak about the plain sense and sometimes does bring plain sense interpretations, on the whole brings Midrashic ideas. And some people say, this is not what a Torah commentator is supposed to do. You want Midrashim, read Chazal, but that's not the job of the uh, Torah commentator. And so some people were critical of that because as uh, Ibn Gabay reports here, uh, Rashi's commentary is Malay drashot v'agadot umishtadlim l'hakshot kushiot l'pakpek l'kanter katavatam. And these are people who really don't hold back when it comes to what they have to say about Rashi, uh, really uh, casting aspersions, I guess, if I wanted to just summarize uh, what's said here, you know, as, as, their, as their lust almost uh, leads them to do. There are others, he says, based on a verse in the Song of Songs, little foxes who trample vineyards. Rashi, in his eyes, is, is an angel of God. But these people are, are belittling Rashi, uh, ridiculing Rashi. What exactly their complaint is, is not entirely clear. They also say that he's very far from Pshat. But he also mentioned something which leads me to suggest that uh, they come from a different place in terms of their criticism of Rashi. They've drank, they've drunk, drank, drunk. How do you say that? You have people who speak English in London, you know these things. Uh, they drank of these evil waters. This is, by the way, sometimes a reference to baptismal waters. And his day, this is very relevant. He's writing after the forced baptisms of Spanish Jewry in 1391. But what he mentions here at the end is chokhmot chitzoniot. These are these external, uh, often with a sense of foreign or inappropriately foreign wisdoms. Uh, I would say people who cultivate uh, sciences. This is often the uh, language used by critics of uh, Spanish Jews in particular who we're interested in science and philosophy, the tradition of Greco-Arabic philosophy. Of course, their great hero is, is Maimonides. And he says, these are people who are critical of Rashi, highly critical of Rashi. And the answer, the question is why? And the answer might well be, well, uh, here's a commentator who's trying to explain the Torah, but he doesn't know physics. He doesn't know mathematics. He doesn't know logic. He doesn't know optics. He doesn't know astronomy. You can't understand 
a Torah Kedoshar, holy Torah without knowing signs, that's a sine qua non for understanding the divine word. And seen from this point of view, we have a, a story, which is of course part of a much larger clash within Sparta culture about the place of what are called here Chokmot Chitzoniot of external sciences in uh, traditional Jewish life. And Rashi is seen here as somebody who, um, who uh, for failure to cultivate these sciences, because in Ashkenaz, no one cultivated these sciences, couldn't possibly be a reliable commentator. Other Sephardic Jews like Ibn Gabay will uh, valorize him precisely because he's true to tradition and doesn't get uh, too uh, deflected from uh, the true meaning of the biblical text by uh, what they see as distortions of the biblical text that arise when people uh, cultivate these sciences. A third a line of criticism. He says, Ki shamati di rabim. It's interesting. He says, Shamati, as if, you know, this is what people were talking about, uh, you know, in the shopping malls. Uh, what's your attitude to Rashi? What's your attitude to Rashi? Ki shamati di rabim. I've heard people who uh, speak slanderously, and uh, many no less, rabim. Meshivim al diktukozal befeirushola toravahem. Heorgilu leshonam bedarke I won't read the whole section here. Basically, these are people who are critical of Rashi's skills as a grammarian. And here too, there's a whole story of Rashi's awareness of earlier layers of Sparta grammar. Uh, but many of you will know that the great achievements of medieval uh, grammar all occur in Muslim Spain, the highest heights. Uh, what's the problem for someone like Rashi at least? They're all written in Arabic, in Judeo-Arabic. And that being the case, uh, Rashi can access Spanish grammatical works written in Hebrew, and he quotes Spanish grammarians, he's happy to do so, Menachem, Dunash, etc. But he doesn't uh, know the most up-to-date Hebrew grammar developed by Spanish grammarians because of this language, uh, language barrier. So these people say, look, I mean, that's a basic for a commentator. You got to know grammar, you know, the language that you're, you're uh, working with. And Rashi uh, doesn't know what uh, anyone really in Spain in, I don't know, grade six, grade eight, grade 10 will know. Uh, just because they've read the latest grammatical works of uh, Ibn Chayyuj and Ibn Janach and the other great grammarians of the Spanish uh, tradition. Okay, uh, we're moving right along here. Uh, and uh, we've hit the late Middle Ages. I'll define that as the 14th and 15th centuries. I don't know that we'll get to every last source here, but you'll get a taste of some of them. And then at the end, I prepared a little quiz for you all to see how well you do and guessing who said what about Rashi. Um, but uh, just a few thoughts about the late Middle, middle Ages. First of all, uh, we mentioned this battle over Tanakh study. This is a difference. It's not ironclad, but on the whole, in the Middle Ages, if you ask who studied Bible, who studied Tanakh, it was much more cultivated in, by the Geonim in the East. In, um, in, I see elements in separation of Torah sites even today in Ashkenazim. Okay, fair enough. Comment uh, well taken. Uh, in the in the uh, Islamic East by the Geonim, and then in uh, 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 in Muslim Spain and Christian Spain, Ramban takes uh, uh, Torah study and Tanakh study uh, very seriously. Uh, and there's this sort of sense that uh, Sephardim have that Ashkenazim they they really don't get the curricular balance right. They're just sort of obsessive about Talmud, and uh, and they neglect uh, what is our foundational text, the Tanakh, and especially the Torah. One such figure, he's an interesting figure and a very complicated figure, uh, complicated because the book that we're reading now in Hebrew that he wrote, he wrote after he was forcibly baptized and was living as a Christian, whole story unto itself, bracket that for the moment. Someone named, uh, well, his Hebrew name was Yitzchak ben Moshe, but he took the name of Prophet Duran. 
uh, um, Maestro Honoratus was his Latin name. And he writes in a grammatical work because he's still cultivating this tradition of Spartac grammar. He writes in one of the uh, grammatical works uh, that becomes the sort of classic of Spartac grammar, Maaseafod it's called. He says, Hine gam bayamim ha'ela vazman hazeh ro'e ani chachmei Yisrael gedolehem mitrashlim ma'od me'amikra. There's a plague that afflicts many sages of Israel, even the great sages gedolehem, and that is that they are mitrashel, the, you know, I don't know, how do you translate that? Rashlanu to modern Hebrew means, you know, carelessness or even uh, negligence. They're negligent, ma'od, very negligent when it comes to studying mikra, when it comes to studying scripture. The sachal, they think any, I could translate, anyone's an idiot if they waste time uh, studying the Bible. Very strange Jewish sentiment, right? That's not where the action is. There's always this competition between Talmud and mikra, and way too often, says our writer here, APOD is called often, uh, the Talmud wins that. You want to know where this is, where this sickness is especially prominent, profound uh, in France and in Germany. Elsewhere, I didn't bring that passage, but I, I, elsewhere he does know, he says, it's spreading now to Spain. This horrible disease is contagious <laughs> and we're catching it from the Ashkenazim. <laughs> he says such that now Spartac Jews are, uh, are, um, are, uh, are, are lax in their allegiance to, uh, to Bible study. The section goes on to say, I'll just describe it uh, paraphrasing. The section goes on to say, uh, you can't do that. You can't neglect the Torah and Tanakh. How do I know that? Well, look at the greatest of Ashkenazic sages. Who's that? That's Rashi. Did Rashi neglect Tanakh? Can anyone accuse him of uh, being negligent in the study of Tanakh? He wrote the greatest commentary in the Torah. He wrote this possibly on all the other books of Tanakh. We don't have all his commentaries, but on almost all of the other books of Tanakh, we have his commentary. So he says, you know, uh, what excuse is there for neglecting Tanakh when Rashi cultivated Tanakh? And he makes the point there just to make sure that uh, we don't write off Rashi. He says, you know, Rashi is the great Talmud commentator. So, uh, you know, one can't write him off as a figure. Th those people who are so valorized Talmud uh, obviously have to admire Rashi as a great Talmud commentator, and yet he also cultivated Tanakh, and hence it's important for us as well uh, to uh, cultivate, uh, cultivate Tanakh. Uh, don't let the Ashkenazic malady uh, spread, to, spread to Spain. If we continue our journey uh, uh, through this sort of netherworld of very blurred boundaries between Christians and Jews, in late medieval Spain, again, I just alluded to the developments, but many of you will perhaps know that there were forced mass conversions of Jews in Spain in 1391, which gave rise to the famous problem of what we used to call the Maranos, now we call them the Conversos or the Anusim. Uh, so uh, we also know that there were ongoing efforts to convert Jews even after 1391. And part of the campaign was conducted by way of public disputation this was tradition that developed already earlier in the Middle Ages. The most uh, famous example, of course, is in 1263, Haranban, who we mentioned earlier, who comes to Barcelona, the palace of the king, and uh, has to defend Judaism in the face of various attacks by uh, Christians and efforts to win uh, Jewish converts to Christianity. The last 
of the great medieval public disputations takes place in Spain, uh, in a fairly little known place in northeast of Spain called Tortosa, then it moves to another place called San Mateo. Uh, and uh, here, if you have the sheet, you can read it for yourself, so I won't uh, take time. Uh, but uh, as, as often the case, who is it who's leading the charge? It's a convert to Christianity who was brought up as a Jew. These are the people who know most about Judaism and also often feel the most passionate about converting Jews. Uh, his name was Yoshua Lorki before his conversion. Uh, afterwards, he uh, reinvents himself as Heronim de Santa Fe. That's his name in Catalan. He has a different name in Castilian. Uh, what's interesting is if you read both the Hebrew account of this disputation and the Latin protocols, of which we have very extensive Latin protocols, recording what was said. And unlike uh, Ranban in Barcelona, who had to show for four days, and he would have been happy if it was four days less than that, uh, here the rabbis defending Judaism off and on had to defend Judaism for close to two years. And the outcome was not quite as good, let's put it that way, as the Barcelona disputation. Uh, but one thing that crops up in a way that's very interesting is Rashi's stature uh, for both sides. The Jews invoke Rashi and the Christians invoke Rashi. This Heronim uh, de Santa Fe, who was uh, brought up and got a good Jewish education, presumably a reasonable Jewish education, he says, you know, I know Rashi's your great commentator. And so if I can find a way to make Rashi support what I'm saying, you guys have to have to concede because I know what Rashi's status is uh, among the Jews. So uh, as I wrote here, Christians thought that they could strike a decisive blow if they showed that they had Rashi on their side. And this was a tactic that was used already or earlier in the, in the Middle Ages and earlier disputations. Rashi crops up in the very first public disputations in France in uh, 1242, 1240, uh, and then uh, ever more prominent in some of the later disputations. For a very different Spanish vision of Rashi, we can turn to an anonymous Spanish writer. We don't know <clears throat> who he is. He wrote a book called The Sefer HaMeshiv. Uh, really, the full title would be the book that, that sounds like, if you translate, the book of the answering. It sounds like a bit of a half title, <clears throat> but it's really uh, the book of the answering angel. This is a writer who felt he was getting revelations from on high uh, by a certain mechanism that he calls, calls Sod HaMalbush. It's the secret of the garment. Um, since not all of you are Kabbalists, and since I'm not a Kabbalist, I won't try to explain that. Uh, but you get a sense that it's some mechanism by which you have some supernal revelation that connects you with uh, powers on high. Uh, Eliyahu is actually the sort of intermediary for this particular um, type of revelation. And he says, uh, you know who had this, uh, this power? Rashi. Rashi, the Rabo Rashi. Uh, got revelations via this so that he learned from his teacher. And he concludes his remarks here by saying, Don't think for a moment that Rashi, you know, is just a writer who picks up a pen, thinks of an idea, and writes it down on a page. That's to completely misconstrue what Rashi was doing. Rashi was tuning in to some higher power via this the secret of the garment. And that's how he wrote his commentaries, including his plain sense commentaries on the, on the Bible. Well, since we mentioned the Barbanel, and since I can never give a, a talk without mentioning a Barbanel, we have to mention a Barbanel, uh, which we'll do all too briefly. I gave an example here, which I'm gonna skip, but I will just mention something somewhat surprisingly that a Barbanel says about Rashi in the introduction to his commentary on the former prophets, uh, Nevi'im Lishonim. 
And he doesn't always speak about Rashi in this way, but in this place he has uh, he has a complaint, let's put it that way, about Rashi. He says, Rashi Zal the uh, This is a complaint we've heard already from more than one quarter that uh, Rashi is too midrashic. Here, Barbanel doesn't say, I have a problem with midrash. He says, uh, I'm all for midrash. And anyone who knows Barbanel knows that he uses midrashim quite frequently. But he says, that's only one part of the divine word. God has a lot to tell us. And he speaks to us on many levels. And Rashi basically privileged one level, not exclusively, but dominantly. And uh, that leaves a lot uh, to be done. And of course, the Barbanel says, and I'm happy to uh, do that. Uh, this is in part a justification, of course, for his own uh, his own enterprise. Okay, so we're going to skip the example from a Barbanel. I, I did say in my title, uh, we started with a, a title that said, uh, between failed pshat, that's Ibn Ezra and God's word. So I realized just about 10 minutes before uh, connecting uh, with you all that I'd actually not fulfilled my promise to talk about Rashi as God's word. So here you have it. This is not on the uh, source sheet that you connected to, but I added it last minute. Uh, this is the same Rabbi Yehuda Chalatz who we met who wrote this commentary on Rashi. He says it somewhat playfully, but it's a nice little video. He says, about Rashi, I say, they're Chalatzah, somewhat playfully or, you know, uh, poetically. Uh, we have a verse in Psalms, ki yashar davar Hashem, right? God's word is straight. Well, he says, if you take the word yashar and you read it backwards, what do you get? Rashi, ki rashi davar Hashem, right? This is the level of... Uh, uh, admiration that Rashi evokes, not in his native Ashkenaz, where of course that would have been expected from his children, his grandchildren, people in the similar culture, but in far off Sfarad and far off Spain, uh, where uh, where one might not have expected him to win the day and where he didn't uh, always prove popular in all quarters, but where eventually uh, he, uh, you know, at least in many respects, as I think we've seen, <clears throat> won the day. Okay, do we have three minutes for our final quiz and everyone can open their microphones now or uh, right by chat. Now here I have a trigger warning that none of the people quoted from here on out is Faradim. So if you if you can't deal with that, you probably have to leave the meeting, uh, but uh, sorry about that. And these are now uh, sources which are not from Spain and they're not pre-1492, but it's interesting to see what happens to our story in the continuation. So I have one Hebrew source, uh, one French source, and a few sources in in English. Okay, first of all, Perush Rashi the Tanakh Hashuv Ma'od. Someone said this. You're going to tell me who, I hope. We'll see. Um, I always say for, to my students who get bonus points, I don't know what you can do with them, but at least you'll get them. Perush Rashi the Tanakh Hashuv Ma'od. Rashi's commentary on the Bible on the Tanakh is very important. Aval, that's always an important word in any language, right? Aval ein hu ele Perush Rashi. But it's just Rashi's commentary. This was said in a letter that was written. Uh, called Hatanach, or it came to be uh, an article, and it was published under the title Hatanach Zoreach Be'or Atzmo. It's a letter from 1953, so that helps you narrow down at least a little bit who wrote it. It appeared in a book called Iunimba Tanach. Uh, the question is, who said Rashi's commentary is very important? He admits it's very important, but he wants us to know it's just Rashi's commentary. It's a commentary in the end. It's not the Bible, right? Don't confuse the two. Okay, dun, 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 dun. who said that? Uh, no, although it sounds like something you could have said. This was an amateur Tanakh scholar who uh, didn't have that much time to write commentaries on the Bible, although he did write commentaries on the Bible because he was too busy founding the state of Israel. So that should help you. 
No one's going to get bonus points. That's uh, David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion in a letter that he wrote where he was talking about, you know, uh, how you really have to take Tanakh, uh, what we might nowadays say, Bogobe Naim, straight up. Uh, and uh, even though I understand that Rashi's had a huge, immense impact on how Jews have understand, uh, understood the, the Tanakh, but uh, you can't confuse Rashi with the, with the Bible. Okay, here's another quote. We Indeed, had someone say it in the chat, so I think he gets a brownie point. Oh, sorry, okay. I, I'm happy to send them via the chat. Uh, when we get together sometime in person, which I hope we will sometime, then I'll deliver the bonus points and I'll buy that person coffee and ice cream. Okay. Uh, indeed, to properly appreciate his work, one must adopt the attitude toward it that Rashi adopted towards scripture. That is not the slightest aspect is arbitrary. Somebody is saying that you basically have to read Rashi as if he's the Torah, right? Everything that Rashi says is meaningful, significant, and uh, doesn't have the slightest aspect of arbitrariness. This is from, uh, you see it's in English, so it's from an English version of Rashi that was published by a certain publisher that I assume will be familiar to all of us or most of us, many of us at least. Who would venerate Rashi that way? This is a pretty extreme statement, right? You have to treat Rashi as if he's the Torah, just as Rashi read, or the Tanakh, just as Rashi read scripture. Who said that? Should check the chat, I see. Okay, I have to start. Uh, this has not been Gurion, <laughs> who did not feel that way about Rashi. This is Art Scroll. This is the Art Scroll Rashi in the introduction. Uh, someone writing for Art Scroll. Okay, very good. Uh, this is a, this is a, you know a view that's out there that uh, sometimes it's connected to the view that we saw that Rashi is written with divine inspiration. Sometimes not, but at any rate, that you know functionally at least you have to treat Rashi as if everything that he uh, said uh, obviously. Okay. Uh, uh, he said uh, was uh, ultimately uh, meaningful. It's interesting because, of course, we do have many different versions of Rashi. No one version of Rashi exactly matches another. So that's a bit of a problem. And Art Scroll is very aware of that. In fact, you know, in the footnotes they bring that. Okay, le judaïsme, c'est le Bible et le Talmud francisé. Je veux dire lui à travers les commentaires de Rashi. So here we know it's a French writer, a French speaker, right? Judaism is the Bible and the Talmud, you know, how would you translate that? Frenchified, francified, francophonified. I don't know how you say it, but right. Uh, Levinas, very good. Okay, je veux dire lui à travers le commentaire. Judaism is the classic text of Judaism read through the lens of Rashi, right? Which there's a lot too. And uh, the person said this is Emmanuel Levinas, who gave a shear on Rashi, gave a class on Rashi every Shabbat for like four decades. What's the problem, of course? We have rules about what you can write down on Shabbat. So we have next to no written records of these shearing that he gave. And of course, it would be, well, we have some uh, reconstructions that people wrote down, but it would be fascinating to have uh, more. And it's interesting to see how he treated Rashi. Okay. Uh, I loved him. I couldn't make headway without him. Of course, I export other approaches, other commentaries, those of Abrabanel, Sforno, Radak, or Chaim, Ibn Ezra. But Rashi's are unique, different, indispensable. He radiates warmth and friendship. That's quite an encomium, right? Okay, now let's see if anyone can figure out. Herman Wuch, that's actually not a bad guess. It's not Herman Wuch, but uh, someone who actually wrote a book on Rashi, I, I cannot praise it as a, a wonderful book on Rashi, in my humble opinion. A person of note, uh, you will know him much more as a figure associated with uh, the Holocaust, Holocaust theology, Holocaust literature. But he did write a little volume on uh, Rashi as well. Any takers? 
for more of that coffee and ice cream. Eliezer, exactly, very good. Okay, a few people got that. Okay, and last but not least, since we haven't heard, sorry to say, very many women's voices, so here you get to hear uh, as Acharon, 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 Chaviva, a woman's voice. It happens to be one of my neighbors who lives all 10 minutes from where I live in Katamon in Jerusalem, so that might be a clue for some of you. Rashi, and I love this metaphor. I use this all the time. In fact, my research assistant, whenever whenever I write, he said, I was waiting for that. I, I, I use it, uh, I think it just tells you so much about what we need to know about Rashi's place in, in, in Judaism. Rashi's commentary has been absorbed into the bloodstream of Jewish culture. I didn't even finish reading and someone already got Aviva Zornberg. Right? right, so that's a, a wonderful, uh, I mean, what can you say beyond that? Absorbed into the bloodstream of Jewish culture. And I think that uh, that captures uh, pretty much what we've seen in Svarad, uh, grosso modo, with some exceptions, and certainly uh, captures the rough trajectory of Rashi's Torah commentary over the ages. Okay, I'll stop there, and uh, now we can uh, chat properly, and if people have questions, comments, or uh, even uh, harsh criticisms of the sort that were sometimes leveled at Rashi. Wow, Professor, thank you so, so much. Absolutely fascinating. Um, I think there's a question from uh, Rav Shmueli Phillips earlier on in the chat. Okay. Um, read it out or you can scroll up a little bit. Okay. Uh, oh, is this this long question here? Boy. How do you think that Rashi's, uh, Rashi understood his own methodology? Uh, something of a cipher, but we'll tackle that one. Several times he explicitly rejects me and saying, I'm only coming for Pshat, not Dibre Agadah, but often brings a Midrash in other places. So. One thing to note here is we don't actually have a full-blown statement, a methodological statement. Uh, often scholars relate to a statement, I'm sure, uh, so I think is being even referenced here, uh, Rashi's comment on Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, where he does say, Lo but he adds this very crucial addendum, so Rashi seems to present a sort of dual program of interpretation. On the one hand, pshat, or shutoshal mikra is the term he uses much more than pshat. On the other hand, uh, what he calls agadah hamiyashevet. These are midrashic interpretations, but not any midrash will do, he says. Rather, I have criteria. Uh, they have to, now how you transmiyashevet here is itself a matter of debate, liyashev, uh, but we could translate it that conforms to the scripture, uh, perhaps. Uh, the idea somehow being that uh, there are midrashim that on the one hand are not plain sense interpretations, but they on the other hand are sufficiently close to uh, the biblical text that uh, I will cite them as well. Sometimes people have noted that some of the midrashim Rashi cites don't really seem to fall into that category either. They really seem far too remote from the text to even count according to the criterion that he himself uh, supply. So this is a matter of great debate. Uh, much uh, This is the sort of thing that's wonderful for scholars because all of us can write articles and get uh, promoted <laughs> on the basis of uh, these sorts of uh, discussions. Uh, but uh, the bottom line is that most of uh, Rashi's commentaries, it may vary from the Torah versus the commentaries on other biblical books, but most of Rashi's comments uh, in, in, in any biblical book are going to have some midrashic some uh, midrashic uh, source. And this uh, becomes a, a focus of these Spanish writers, these Sephardic commentators on Rashi who have their own tradition about how to relate to midrash. And one thing that they often feel compelled to do is to explain midrashim that Rashi brings because Rashi almost never, effectively never, I can't think of a single example, 
quotes the Midrash and says, and if you want to know what this Midrash means, now I'll explain it to you. What Rashi does is he quotes the Midrash and says, okay, on to the next verse, or maybe on to the next Midrash about the same verse. Uh, and many of these Midrashim are extremely perplexing, especially to uh, what you might call a Spartac sensibility. And so one of the tasks of the commentator on Rashi, if you're a Spartac commentator on Rashi, is to often try to make sense of his Midrashim in ways that will speak to a Spartac audience. Okay, when sticking to simple shot leads to a seemingly mundane, unimportant meaning, does that give a license for Rashi and others to draw upon Midrashim, assuming that the Torah must be teaching something more theologically significant? Yes, I think that's a, some of the sense of, um, of what people think Rashi is, is doing as a commentator. He did not see it simply as the role of the commentator to explain the text, but to, to communicate the divine word to uh, his community. And some would add, uh, I think everyone would add in some measure to what degree is a matter of debate to a community that was often uh, finding itself in trying circumstances. In his own day, of course, 1096, the first crusade, that's nine years before Rashi passes away. Uh, it doesn't affect French Jewry in the most direct way, but it's a catastrophe for German Jews. Uh, German Jewry is uh, the cradle of Ashkenazic civilization. Rashi studied there as a youth. Whole communities are you know, effectively destroyed. Uh, and so um, Rashi says, uh, in addition to explaining the text, in addition to providing lessons in Judaism about uh, the land of Israel, about holiness, about ethics, about God, uh, about God's love for the Jewish people, a theme that crops up over and over again in Rashi. In addition to that, I need to make sure that uh, beleaguered Jews are able to withstand some of the challenges that they're uh, facing. And so some of the Midrashim presumably subserve that message, uh, inspirational and inspirational uh, specifically in the face of the challenges Jews faced as a small minority uh, not always persecuted, that can be overstated, but sometimes persecuted and sometimes persecuted terribly, including uh, in Rashi's own day uh, during the first crusade. Okay, why don't we find more early examples of Chazal, e.g. Talmud of sages seeking simple pshat? Uh, well, you're asking a hard question. Uh, these are above my pay grade. Um, uh, I think even Ezra would say, well, you know, they knew pshat, uh, that's pretty straightforward, so they didn't have to, uh, spend a lot of time, uh, time on that. But I think, you know, a more historical approach would say that Pshat was really not the rabbinic way of reading the biblical text. I have a friend who likes to find cases where he considers uh, Midrashim quite close to, or in fact, consonant completely with the Pshat. Uh, so it's not that there's no uh, Pshatim in Midrash Rabbah, let's say, or in uh, Mechilta or other rabbinic collections of that sort. But the traditional mode of uh, Jewish biblical interpretation as it comes down from the authoritative rabbinic layer of that uh, tradition is uh, effectively midrashic. And that makes uh, Rashi in his own world, even Ezra and others like him in their own worlds, pioneers in what is effectively a relatively new, highly innovative enterprise. And that is cultivation of uh, the plain sense, even though sometimes it uh, causes uh, huge tensions because it can uh, uh, clearly deviate from what uh, Midrashic uh, tradition uh, teaches. Okay, so I don't know if that was helpful at all. Thank you very much. Okay, answering the questions. I see there's a few 
Uh, you want to unmute yourself? I yeah, I, I could ask a quick question. Professor, that was, first of all, uh, unbelievable. So thank you so much for that. That could be taken two ways, but okay. <laughs> yeah, unbelievably good. And uh, I've, I've, I've gained a lot of wisdom tonight. Um, our Rosh Bet Midrash, Rabbi Joseph Dweck, he was Rosh um, Yeshiva, Barakai Yeshiva in New York. And when I first, when I first met him, one of the things he had told me was that in the curriculum, they were very adamant on not teaching Rashi um, to make sure that they understood the grammar, um, mm. going through Adak Safar Shorashim to really understand the Mikra. And I, I remember hearing that the first time I was like, whoa, what, what, what's that? That sounds crazy. And then obviously throughout the years, I've, I've learned that this was the classical Sephardi approach, if you like, and Yoshiro tonight really um, is testament to that. The question I had was, um, why was it, in your opinion, that Ashkenaz focused so much on Talmudic study? Was there a lack of access to the Mikra? Was it because they were living in a Christian environment and studying the Mikra might lead you to being, I don't know, a Christian? What, what, what was it that, what, what do you say from all the experience and knowledge that you've, you know, gathered in this field? Yeah, I mean, that, that's that uh, quite a large and challenging question. Um, and, and you'd really have to go back to um, some of the classical uh, sources as they were understood in, in uh, Ashkenaz. I mean, part of it was that, you know, if you look at certain, you know, Divrei uh, Chazal, they do stress that it's really Torsha Belpeh, which is, you know, the sort of mysterium of, of Israel. Tanakh was available to everybody, you know, tragically from Chazal's point of view, it was translated into Greek, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what really sets the Jews off uh, from the Umota Olam is uh, Torah Shabalpeh. So you had that idea. You certainly had the idea, of course, that Halachala uh, Ma'aseh, if one wanted to know what to do as an observant Jew, one had to relate to uh, Toshba. Uh, and then I think, you know, probably you're correct that there, there, there are certain uh, interpretations of certain rabbinic statements which do suggest that uh, unbridled and unguided study of Tanakh uh, can lead to heresy. Uh, you know, uh, there's lots of interesting things in Tanakh, and if you don't uh, sort of read them on the basis of, uh, or within a traditional framework, I guess you would say, um, then that would um, that, that, that 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 could be indeed uh, could be indeed uh, dangerous. Uh, and then there was you know various trends within the Jewish world and beyond that you know pushes and pulls. With the rise of Karaism, uh, this forced uh, rabbinic Jews who were immersed in Talmud to devote some time and attention, and at least in Arabic-speaking lands, to uh, scripture, because after all, the Karaites took their stand on scripture, and you didn't want to leave the playing field to this, uh, what the Rabbinites certainly saw as deviant group within the Jewish uh, fold. Uh, sometimes that happened with uh, Christians as well, where they pressed their claims based, of course, on Tanakh, or certain verses in Yeshayahu or other places, and so that forced Jews to sometimes return to uh, return to Tanakh. So there's, there's a long and complicated story. If anyone knows the uh, history of this uh, statement, Minu Beneichem Minei Gayon, Gemara and Brachot, when the Talmidei Rabbi Eliezer go in and ask for his sort of far, final parting, par, parting words, and he gives them a whole list of five things I think they should do. And one of the things he says is Minu, uh, stop or prevent, however you translate it, Beneichem, your children, Min Gayon. Uh, the question is, what is Higayon here? Higayon in modern Hebrew, of course, means logic, and it does sort of have that track in earlier interpretation. But Rashi, uh, you can say, very surprisingly, in his Talmud commentary, says 
it gives two interpretations, but one is uh, that you shouldn't overindulge your children in study of scripture. And he says the reason is mishum demashcha, uh, sort of a paradoxical reason. He says because it attracts, because it's actually, uh, you can almost say beguiling. It's, you know, it's hard work studying Baba Kama <laughs> with the Ritva. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, reading stories about Megillat Ruth, that's uh, something, you know, very winning about that. So Rashi doesn't give those examples, but I'm just saying, you know, he, he actually sets the stage a little bit for this reticence to cultivate. He doesn't say don't do it at all, but he says, you know, uh, I think he says Yotermi is his language there. Don't overdo it. And many Ashkenazic authorities and not just Ashkenazic authorities then go on to appeal to this Rashi and say, hey, you know, Rashi's the one who said this. And then people say, he didn't say neglect it completely. He just said, you know, don't overdo it, etc. So this becomes one of many sources, rabbinic sources, but especially as interpreted by Rashi, that becomes a basis for uh, justifying uh, the view that uh, the Talmud, Hu Ikar, and uh, that uh, Tanakh, uh, if you cultivate it, it's sort of more as a hobby, as a sideline, but not... Uh, Main focus. We have no evidence in the yeshivot of the Balea Tosafot that there was any formal instruction in Tanakh. There were individual Tosafists, including Rosh Bam, Rashi's grandson, famously, and Rabbeinu Tam, for that matter, who certainly did cultivate uh, grammar and uh, Tanakh. Uh, but this is something that they did after their long day uh, being Rosh Yeshiva or you know learning Bechavruta in the Beit Midrash. Uh, what you're supposed to be doing, Baba Kama, Baba Metziah. You know, Zvachim and uh, so probably not Zvachim actually, but you know, Sechtot and Moed and Zikin, etc. So it's, a, it's an interesting topic and it has a, you know, a long afterlife uh, in Ashkenaz and on through the Enlightenment. And of course, one can ask about curricula in modern times. And, you know, uh, I always tell my students at Bariwan that if we take a 10 minute field trip across the bridge and go to B'nai Brak and we walk into any yeshiva, I can assure you that no one will be sitting there studying your meow. <laughs> pretty safe bet, right? Uh, that's just not what one does in yeshiva. One is studying uh, Talmud, Talmud in the broad sense of the word, you know, halachic literature, obviously. Send them to our Bet Midrash, Professor. What? Send them to our Bet Midrash. Oh, you really, okay. I should, uh, well, uh, that's not a 10 minute walk over the bridge, however, but I'll try. <laughs> okay, how would you compare Rashi's commentary to that of uh, Onkelis? Uh, well, Onkelis is, is technically a Targum, so it's sort of a translation. Obviously, any translation has an interpretive dimension, but Onkelos is fairly famed for sticking quite closely on the whole to uh, the biblical text. There are other Targumim, which are much more freeform in terms of their willingness to add in ideas or uh, translate according to Midrashe Halacha, et cetera, et cetera. But Rashi was close enough to Targum to substitute for Targum. What you find if you look in the Nose Kelim, of the Shulchan Aruch. We saw that passage where the Shulchan Aruch says, well, you can learn Rashi. Yirei Shemayim will do both Targum and Rashi. So if you look there at the Magain Avraham and others, uh, they talk about why is it that Rashi is a, is a substitute for Targum. And by the way, as far as I know, I'm not a great halachist at Chata'ayani Maskira Yom, but I do not know of any other book written by a medieval Jew that actually becomes the object of a Psaq Halacha. Where Rashi's Torah commentary actually allows you to fulfill halachic obligation. I don't know any other siman in Shulchan Aruch where a medieval work is mentioned uh, in that uh, that respect. But anyway, going back to the question of the relationship between Rashi and Targum, one thing, of course, that people will recall about Rashi is he often does quote the Targum. He was a fan of the Targum, something actually that he shares in common with the Rambam, who also thought very highly of Targum Onglis. 
um, aren't always easy to find things that are common between Rashi and Rambam, but that's one of them. So uh, since he says katargumo so frequently, it was uh, perhaps some people say very natural to say, well, you know, Rashi, he's not exactly a Targum, but he does quote the Targum. And as was mentioned in one of our sources, he also is a pretty running commentary. You know, you, you couldn't really use Sforno for Shnai Mikra Echa Targum, or even Ranban for that matter, because they don't comment on every verse. Uh, they take a set of verses, they skip a few verses, etc. I guess there are verses which Rashi does skip. That certainly is true. But, you know, if you're looking for a systematic commentary that pretty much covers the whole of Torah, well, Rashi's as good as it gets. So that was probably another reason. In that sense, he's also similar, I would say, uh, to Targum. Obviously, he's not a translation exactly, but he's similar in that way that you get uh, pretty comprehensive uh, coverage. So there's uh, various reasons. There's some speculative, some from the actual uh, post scheme, some from scholars about why it was natural for Rashi to perhaps be uh, uh, advanced as a candidate uh, to replace or at least be weren't alongside the uh, Targum. So that was a good question. Professor, uh, thank you. I'm wary of time. Um, I think there's, can you take one last question? Okay, well, is that the one? Uh, in yes. The Mayor, do you, would you like to unmute yourself? Hi, yes. Um, I was just wondering what's, what are the best commentators to study Pshat and Dikduk and things like that? Like the most cohesive commentary to study? Um, well, I, you know, one thing I guess to say is that shot is not necessarily one thing, you know, different people, different commentators have different conceptions of uh, shot. And I think to some extent, some of these things are, are a matter of taste. I, you know, my, my oldest son, bless him, uh, who is a, who is a Talmud Chacham, uh, he, somehow him and Rashi never gelled, but he has a love affair with Ranban. So he uh, learns Shlaim Mikrav Echad Ranban. Uh, that's what speaks to him. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know if there's one best uh, commentary. People often have their, their uh, favorites. I mean, you know, on some constructions, Rashi is a pshat-oriented commentary. And if you compare him to other commentaries written in Ashkenaz, he actually is quite pshatist in his approach. He doesn't do tons of gematria and he doesn't do atbash. There's all sorts of, you know, far, you know, way out type interpretations that one finds in Ashkenaz that Rashi cultivates very little, if at all. Uh, but certainly uh, there's even Ezra, even Ezra is a challenge. You know, he writes very uh, cryptically sometimes, certainly very laconically. Uh, so it's not uh, the easiest read. Uh, there's Rashbam, but again, he doesn't comment on every verse, Rashi's grandson. He's sort of about as hardcore hard as it gets in terms of shot commentary in the Jewish uh, Middle Ages and with a bit of a literary touch. So that's uh, something that, you know, might appeal to, <laughs> to you or to others. Uh, you know, uh, one of the great inventions I always tell my students uh, of rabbinic Judaism, in my opinion, which we don't often appreciate enough is the mikraot gedolot, right? Where on one page, you actually have four or five, maybe even six commentaries alongside one another. And to me, it's sort of a symbol of the fact that uh, Judaism is not a monolithic faith. It's not a fundamentalist faith. We're not afraid of putting five or six voices, often very uh, dissenting voices or different, different voices, at least, on the same page. Some people are making other suggestions. Well, Bar Barbanel, of course. But at Barbanel, you have to have time and energy and a lot of patience. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we, we have the luxury of a very rich tradition of Bible commentary, 
from Ashkenaz, from Sfarad, from other places, Italy, uh, and of course, Rav Sajigan was mentioned, Bavel. Uh, so, uh, you know, the challenge is more to, to limit oneself and encompass uh, all the riches that there are uh, out there. Uh, but, uh, you know, to this day, uh, one doesn't do too badly by studying Perish Rashi. It's pretty easy to read. There are English translations, including one that was done in Britain. I think it was in the 30s or 40s. The Silverman is sometimes called. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, well, we didn't really talk about it too much, but Rashi can do that grammatical thing, that syntactical thing, that morphological thing. Uh, sometimes uh, in ways that are almost surprising, you know, he'll jump from some midrashic flight to some uh, very uh, serious uh, exploration of some aspect of the Hebrew verb. So that is there as well uh, for, uh, for people who are, who I always tell my students, I know you all have grammar, and they all smile wryly. Uh, but for people who do like that thing, that's also in Rashi uh, uh, as well. Thank you. Okay, so I think uh, I think we'll call it there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so so much. It's late for you, and we're also aware that uh, in you know in Israel it's difficult times, uh, and I'm sure I speak for everyone that what's happening there is very much on our minds and and in our tefillot. Um, peace, God, as it will be shalom in Israel. And um, we we very much look forward to having you again, and uh, obviously hosting you in person if you ever plan to come to the United Kingdom. Um, and please God, we'll, uh, the book is also, I think the link is there. We're also gonna put it on the, on the group. And I think that was, this class was the perfect plug for it. <laughs> uh, okay, um, great, great. I hope people, uh, and happy to stay in touch. Uh, I didn't send out my email, I don't know. Uh, um, I, if you anyone... can post it in the WhatsApp group. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's in the WhatsApp group. Okay, fine. We can so. post it in the WhatsApp group if you want to. Uh, I think Avi's got your email address. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I'm having trouble writing in English anyway. Never seems to quite figure out how to do that in the chat. At any rate, uh, Avi can send that around if you want and happy to stay in touch. Thank you so, so much. And Laila Tov, everybody. And we look okay. forward to seeing Laila Tov. everybody um, next week. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Have a great day.